Amen. Thank you, worship team and instrumentalist, vocalist, for leading us this morning to consider these great truths and these precious promises. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, please open to Psalm chapter 102, Psalm 102. And it has been a wonderful morning. It has been such a joyous and a blessed morning, but... To be completely honest, this morning is also kind of a sad morning. I always feel a little sad when we come to the end of a series, the end of a current topic or series or book that we've been working through. And this morning we reach the end of this study on the character and nature of God. And yet, of course, even as I say those words, I am very much so reminded of the fact that this really ends nothing, right? We continue to study. We continue to grow. We continue to be amazed at who our glorious God is uh, from this time forward and for all of eternity. We will be growing in our knowledge of God and in our love for Him. So this really truly ends nothing, but this morning is the official end of this study on the character and nature of God. Last Last week, Pastor Stephen led us in contemplating and in thinking about the majesty and the glory of God. And I walked away from that study last week with really one primary thought in mind, and it's this. My view of God is too small. My view of God... Who said amen to that? How do you... I'm just kidding. I just admitted that, right? My view of God... And by the way, that's true of you as well. However much you may think of God, He is more glorious. He is more worthy of our worship and of our attention and of our praise than we could ever think Him to be. None of us has ever seen or understood the height and the depth of God's glory and greatness. So yes, our view of God is too small. And yet we continue to press into the truth, to know God, to walk with Him, that we may grow in our understanding of God. Now this is by no means a great analogy, but this is kind of like when we see a stretch of beautiful coastland, like what is on the screens behind me here is just a small picture of of the Oregon coast. And it's beautiful. And we can see in this picture things that are true. We see some measure of detail from this glimpse of the Oregon coast. We see something of the beauty and the majesty of the land and the seas and the mountains. But of course, we cannot see all of Oregon. We cannot even see beyond the hills and the mountains in this picture. There is just so much more that this picture doesn't show. And as we've been in this study on the character and nature of God, we must freely admit that we have seen but a glimpse Just a glimpse of God's glory and greatness. Yes, we've looked at many of those things that God has revealed to us that he says are essential to understanding his character and nature, but we have only begun to scratch the surface in beholding the glory of God. And it will be our joy for 
all of eternity to marvel at His greatness and grace. In these past 18 weeks, just in case you've forgotten how long it's been that we've been in this study, for the last 18 weeks, uh, we've considered that God is self-existent and He's eternal. He is infinite and self-sufficient. He's holy and transcendent. He is triune, existing eternally as Father, Son, and Spirit. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He is omnipresent. He is present everywhere. He is omnipotent, possessing all strength. He is sovereign, wise, truthful, good, faithful, merciful, gracious. He is loving. He is jealous. He is righteous. He is just. And He will express and continues to express His anger and wrath against sin. And as we saw last week, God is majestic and He is all glorious. And now in conclusion to all of that, for this morning we consider the immutability of God. The fact that God never changes. He never stops or ceases to be who He is. Before we read from Psalm 102, I just want to read once again and remind you of what God revealed and said about Himself to Moses when Moses asked about His name. We read in Exodus 3.13 these words, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is His name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God is the great I am, not the great I was, not the great I will be. He is the great I am forever unchanging in his character and nature. As the great I am, there can be no change within him. He remains perfectly, fully, gloriously all that he is for all of eternity. If you're in Psalm 102, look at just a few verses. Look at Psalm 102, verses 25 to 28. The psalmist writes, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. So reads the words of the living God. Let's pray once again and ask for God's help and blessing as we study this important truth. Gracious Father, once again, we, we come before you and we are so thankful that as we come to you, as we call upon you, you are the eternal, gracious God who never changes. While we experience 
constant change in, in a myriad of ways. As we, as we experience so much uncertainty in our lives, it is so good to find in you our unchanging hope, our unchanging confidence. Father, help us to grow once again in our knowledge of you and in our love for you. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, as we consider the immutability of God, we want to try to do four things. We want to explain it as, as best we can as finite, limited, changing creatures. We want to explain it as best we can. We want to illustrate it the way that Scripture illustrates it. And then we want to argue for it. And what I, what I mean by that, when I say argue for it, we want to try to address one of the most common questions or objections that we encounter when we talk about the unchanging character of God. And then lastly, we want to try and apply this precious truth to our lives. We want to consider why is this truth so important to us? How is it relevant for our lives every single day? And it is relevant for our lives every single day. So firstly, the immutability of God explained. We, we should know, we should understand that God's life, God's character, God's word, God's purposes do not change. Do not change. Now, admittedly, this is so difficult for us to grasp. This is so hard for us to understand. As we see things, all we know is change. Time is constantly passing. Things are always changing around us. From our perspective, it seems like Everything changes. I mean, even as we think about something so mundane and something so simple like style or even like hairstyle. I mean, what was considered very fashionable just a few generations ago is no longer considered desirable. And, and forget generations for just a moment. Hairstyles change so much in just one lifetime. In just a few decades, so much can change. David Beckham, I am told, is a famous soccer player or football player, depending on, on how you want to, how you want to say it. He was born in 1975 and someone took the time to chart and to graph all of his various hairstyle changes just over the years. Now, when I found this on a Google search, I had two thoughts. Number one, it's amazing what you can find on a Google search. And then number two, I'm a little offended that no one has done this for me, that no one has taken the time to chart and to graph. My, I'm just, that's not a challenge, by the way. Uh, don't take... See, but the point is, man, so much changes just in one lifetime, just in hair alone. Styles change. Our vocabularies change. When I was growing up, it was cool to say words like radical and gnarly and, and dude. Kids nowadays, they don't say that. They say things like totes. That was totes amazing. Or they say things like lit or sup or YOLO. And I, and I realize that just by me uttering those words, I have made them very uncool. Um, 
But that's a responsibility that I'm willing that I'm 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 willing to bear. Um, styles change, vocabularies change, our attitudes and perspectives on things change. Parenting styles change, our circumstances change. Which, by the way, is not always a bad thing. There is often times that we like change, that we want change. We often vote for politicians based on the change that we think they're going to be able to affect. When you are waiting in line at the BMV, you are thankful for change. You want change. You want progress. You want growth and movement. When you're in pain or you are sick, you want progress. You want change. You want development. We want to change and grow in our knowledge. That's why we read books and go to school. Sometimes we feel the need to make a job change or or to change houses and to relocate. So we rent a U-Haul and we get to work. Our friendship, our friendships change as over the years people come in and out of our lives. All we know is change. And so it is very difficult for us to fathom and comprehend a good, glorious, gracious God who never changes and who never needs to change, who never has any need to improve himself in any way because he is already perfectly, eternally, thoroughly glorious and perfect in every way. God does not change in his life, his character, his nature, his being, his word, his purposes. He remains the same. Let's unpack this just a little bit. Firstly, God's life does not change. God's life does not, it cannot change. We, we've already seen this in Psalm 102 verse 27. The psalmist says, but you are the same and your years have no end. Jeremiah 10.10 says of God, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. That's who God is. He is the living God. He is the everlasting King. He can never be altered in His life, power, strength, energy. 1 Timothy 6.16 says that God alone has immortality. That God alone possesses immortality. God possesses all life within Himself. He is the source of life. God's life does not change. Also, God's character does not change. His character does not change. God is not good one moment and then bad the next. God does not speak truth in one conversation to one individual and then lie to someone the next day. God does not think that gossip and slander are okay on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, but not so good the other days of the week. No, God's holiness, faithfulness, love, mercy, wrath will not diminish in the slightest bit the closer we get to the year 2020. God remains the same in His character and nature. Over in James 1.16, we read these words, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There are no variations. There are no even slight shifts within the character and nature of God. He is always true to Himself. He is always consistent in His character and nature. 
This is why the psalmist could say in Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. From eternity past to eternity future, God remains the same. He remains sovereign, good, holy, gracious, and wise, which is why He is our dwelling place, our safety, our refuge for all generations, for all time. Again, the psalmist would write again in Psalm 103, verse 17, I love this, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. God's love is steadfast. It is never failing. It is existing from eternity past to eternity future. With God there is no change. God never ceases to be who He is. Next, we should be reminded that God's Word never changes. God's Word does not change. Again, how unlike us, right? We frequently feel the need to correct and edit the things we say and write. We often misspeak and we say something that is incorrect and and this is understandable because we get new information which makes us realize that something we had previously said is is incorrect we get new information or perhaps we speak in a moment of great emotion we speak in a moment of great passion and say something that we should never have said and so we need to ask for forgiveness for that but not so with god Not so with God. He never has to edit, go back, or take back something that he has said or promised. Because God has never gotten new information. God has never exaggerated about something. God exists outside of time. He is not limited by time the way that we are. So God is sure. He is true. He is entirely trustworthy. In Isaiah 40 verse 8. We read, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Psalm 119 verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Jesus said in Luke 16, 17, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Jesus would say again in John 10, 35, that Scripture cannot be broken. It cannot be broken. Paul would later write in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Brothers and sisters, the immutability of God is one reason, one reason especially why we should love and treasure and cherish the word of God. The unchangeableness of God is one reason why we should be all so eager to read and study and memorize the word of God. Did you know 
that there are many who think wrongly about the Bible. There are many who look at the Bible and the, the, the historical accounts in the Bible and the individuals described in the Bible and they think something like this. It seems to me so remote. It seems so distant from, from where I live. How can this really be profitable for me today? Abraham, the dude lived thousands of years ago. Joseph, thousands of years ago. David, Esther, Ruth, Isaiah, the Apostle Paul, Peter, and John. I'm not a part of that day. I'm not a part of that time. I'm not a part of that culture. How am I supposed to relate to any of this? How is this supposed to be meaningful and beneficial to me as I encounter situations and people that seem like is a totally different world from the one that I live in? Listen, friend, the answer lies in the immutability of God. The fact that God himself never changes. I love how J.I. Packer tries to answer this very question in his book, Knowing God. He writes these words. The sense of remoteness. He means the sense of remoteness that we feel when we come to the word of God. The sense of remoteness is an illusion which springs from seeking the link between our situation and that of the various Bible characters in the wrong place. It is true that in terms of space, time, and culture, they and the, histori- and the historical epoch to which they belonged are a very long way away from us. But the link between them and us is not found at that level. The link is God himself. For the God with whom they had to do is the same God with whom we have to do. We could sharpen the point by saying exactly the same God. For God does not change in the least particular. He's right. The Bible is not relevant because you and I can relate to the people that we read about in the Bible. Although, to be completely honest, we can and should relate to the people we read about in the Bible. Because we can. We can relate to them. We can identify with the struggles and the thoughts and the difficulties that they wrestled with. But the Bible is relevant, first and foremost, most importantly, Because God never changes. The same God who faithfully loved, who faithfully cared for Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Esther, Ruth, Isaiah. It is the same God that we walk with and know today. He has not changed. His word, his character remains the same. And so we should be very eager to know and to study God's word because God is the same yesterday and today and forever. And and in addition to this, we should also remember that God's purposes do not change. God's purposes do not change. We never have to wonder. We never have to wake up in the morning and wonder, is God still committed to His glory? Is God still committed to the good of His people? Is God still committed to to seeing that His children make it home to glory, to be with Him? 
Psalm 33 verses 10 to 11 says this, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. But now look at this. Look at, look at what the writer says next. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The, the plans of His heart to all generations. God will accomplish His plans and purposes. Nobody stops God. Nobody defeats God. Nobody sends Him home slowly walking because they have frustrated Him and He has failed. Because God is passionate, because God is committed to His glory, He is committed to the good of His people, Paul could write so confidently in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul was confident. He knew God's purposes, God's plans to grow and mature his children would never change. This is also why Paul could write later in Romans 8.28, We know That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. God has purposed to redeem, to sanctify, to glorify His people. And God's purposes will be accomplished. He will not waver from that. He will not change His mind in His love for His people. So we should see that the immutability of God, it is a glorious truth. It is a profound truth that should fill us with confidence and trust in God. And we certainly see this pictured for us, illustrated for us in Scripture. Please note this on your outline. In Scripture, we see that God is continually compared to a rock. God is compared to a rock. We see this throughout much of the Bible where God is called a rock. Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel 2.2, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. David praised God, saying in 2 Samuel chapter 22, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. We read in the Psalms, in Psalm 1914, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we could go on and on and on and on throughout the Psalms. God is many times called a rock. In Isaiah 26 verse 4, we read, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul compares Christ to a rock, saying that it was actually Christ who cared for and provided for the Israelites as they were in the wilderness. 1 Corinthians 10.4 says, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So God is a rock, whatever that means. Right? God is a rock. That may seem to you to not be a flattering comparison. As we think about a a rock, we think of something that is dead, that is lifeless, that has no thought, no emotion, no passion of any kind, that has no 
thought. And, and so there are some ways in which, yes, we want to affirm the rockness of God. And there are other ways in which we recognize that, yes, this analogy, like all analogy, fails in some way. God is a rock, meaning that God is strong. God is steadfast. God is secure. God is unchanging. To say that God is a rock speaks of this unchanging protection and strength of God. On the screens is a picture of the rocky caves, the rocky hiding places at En Gedi in Israel. This is where King David would have hidden himself and and escaped when Saul was seeking after him to, to kill him and to annihilate him. God was David's protection. God was, was David's rock, his hiding place, his strength, his unchanging security. God is a rock. Now, there is a terrible rumor going around that paper beats rock. Let me tell you, paper never beats rock. Okay, there's no rock out there that is that is quaking and nervously afraid that some paper is going to come up and, and wrap over it. Okay, the next time you play rock, paper, scissors, pick rock every time. And then argue with your friends that rock beats everything because it does. The point is, God is unchanging in his life, unchanging in his character, unchanging in his word, unchanging in his purposes. God is continually referred to as a rock, describing his unchanging strength, his unchanging power, his unchanging protection for his people. Now, I I know what you're thinking. You're thinking what I would be thinking about this point in the message. Yes, that all sounds good. That sounds wonderful. But what about those verses in the Bible? Where it seems like God changes his mind. Where it seems like God regrets doing something. Where, where, where God himself speaks of himself as, as regretting. How, how do we think about those, those things? How, how do we address that? That is a totally legitimate question. If God never changes, then what do we do with those few places in the Bible where it says that God regretted doing something, or maybe even depending on the translation that you have, it says that God repented of of doing something. How should we understand those kinds of statements? Well, turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is perhaps the most obvious example of, of a time where we read of God regretting doing something. We certainly read another instance in Genesis chapter 6 connected to the worldwide flood. Uh, but let's look at this one here in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now, you probably are already well familiar with the context of this. The situation here is that God has appointed Saul to be king over Israel. And so Samuel, who was a, a prophet of God, who was helping to lead and, and to guide the nation of Israel, he anointed Saul to be king over Israel. As you probably well know, Saul 
did not follow the Lord. Saul did not love the Lord his God with all his mind, heart, soul, and strength. Saul continually rebelled and decided to do his own thing and decided to go his own way. Now here in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God has commanded Saul and the armies of Israel to go and to wipe out the Amalekites, to destroy them and to annihilate them And again, Saul does not obey. They spare the king of the Amalekites. They keep a lot of the good animals, a lot of the good spoil and plunder for themselves. And so Samuel uh, learns of this as God comes to speak to him and to instruct him. If you're in 1 Samuel chapter 15, look at verses 10 to 12. It says this, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. And here's what, here's what God says to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. So here God says to Samuel, I regret I regret that I have made Saul king. Now, Samuel then goes to confront Saul and to tell Saul that God is going to raise up another king, that there's going to be another king to replace him who will lead the people of God and that Samuel is, uh, that Saul is going to be removed and that he will no longer be king. But notice now what Samuel says to Saul in verses 28 and 29. Okay, look at verses 28 and 29. And Samuel said to him, to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So in verse 11, God says to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king. And then in verse 29, Samuel says that God, the glory of Israel, will not have regret. Which is it? Does God have regret or does he not have regret? Before we try to bring clarity to that, look at how this chapter ends. Look at verse 35. Verse 35, it says, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. What do we do with that? How do we we understand this? How do we make sense of this? Well, a couple things to keep in mind. First of all, it's important to remember, straight out of the gate, this may seem like a, a minor detail, but I think it's important. It's important to remember that the biblical writers were not stupid. Okay, this chapter was intentionally written in this way for us to wrestle with these very types of questions. This is not a mistake. It's not like the writer forgot what he wrote in verse 29 when he wrote verses 11 and 35. The writer of 1 Samuel was not fickle. He was not mindless. He was not writing along saying, God regrets. Nope, change my mind. He doesn't regret. No, a few verses later, you know what? I guess God does regret. No, no, the biblical writers were, 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 were not silly, were not 
foolish. We're not mindless. This is intentionally written in such a way as to grab our attention, to make us wrestle with these very types of questions. Secondly, we need to pay very careful attention to Samuel's words in verse 29. In verse 29, Samuel is clearly drawing a distinction, a division between the way God is and the way we are. Samuel is drawing a distinction between God and us, between God and man. Look, up, look, look again at verse 29. See, see what it is exactly that Samuel says. He says also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. God is not like a man in the way that God regrets. See, we regret things because we do something foolish. We do something stupid. We act out of emotion. We act impulsively. And so we regret doing something. Or like we said earlier, we get new information. And so we learned that what we've done previously, we shouldn't have done. And so we regret doing something. But none of these things is true of God. None of these things can apply to God. God has all the facts. God knows all things. God never makes a rash or foolish or impulsive decision. As we said earlier, God exists outside of time. He is never lacking in wisdom. So whatever it means for God to regret, it is not like the kind of regret that we experience as sinful people. Samuel makes that abundantly clear to us. He is drawing the distinction between God and man. Third, we must also remember this, that God often uses, and we see this throughout the Bible, throughout Scripture, that God uses language that we can relate to, that we can understand. God uses this kind of language to teach us something about Himself. Now, prepare yourself for some very uh, fancy and highfalutin words, words like anthropomorphic, words like anthropopathic. These are, these are fancy words that people have come up with uh, to, to describe and explain the way that biblical writers will use human characteristics, even human emotions, to describe the way that God is, to help us learn something about God. That we will have some understanding in our limited, finite way to understand His glorious vast character and nature. And this is, by the way, similar to what we've already discussed uh, discussed this morning when we said that God is a rock. God is not literally a rock. This is descriptive language. We understand this, that God is helping us. He's teaching us something about himself. And so the point I'm trying to make is this. We must be very careful to not recreate God in our image, supposing that he is just like us. Supposing that he regrets things because he has made a bad decision or he doesn't have all the facts. Okay, now, I've said a lot and you may be thinking, that's interesting, some of that is kind of helpful, but you still haven't answered the question, what's the point of 1 Samuel 15? What's the point? Why do, why does God say that he regrets and then Samuel says that God is not like a man and that he doesn't regret? What's the point? What are we supposed to learn from this passage in this context about the character and nature of God? What are we supposed to understand here? Well, let me present it to you this way. I love the way 
that one Old Testament scholar, Dale Ralph Davis, answers this very question. You'll see the quote on the screens, but follow along with me on this. This is good. He writes of this. Here, here's what I think we are to learn from this. He writes, it is a tragedy when Saul refuses to be Yahweh's disciple. It grieves Yahweh. He is not a you win some, you lose some God. Nonchalance is never listed as an attribute of God. Verse 11 does not intend to suggest Yahweh's fickleness of purpose, but his sorrow over sin. It does not depict Yahweh flustered over lack of foresight, but Yahweh grieved over lack of obedience. Samuel was not the only one who mourned. The form in which the text communicates this truth is a bold one. It was probably meant to be so, to get our attention We need to know that the God of the Bible is no cold slab of concrete impervious to our carefully defended apostasies. He's right. God is no cold, hard slab of concrete. And the few passages of Scripture that we see, that we read like here in 1 Samuel 15, and that we see in Genesis chapter 6, uh, when it speaks of God's judgment on the world uh, in that worldwide flood, these instances of God, quote-unquote, regretting are tied to His hatred of sin are tied to his grieving over the willingness of people to walk away from him who is the fountain of life and to go their own way and to walk into death and disaster. We are not meant to see a God who doesn't have all the facts or who is caught off guard. We are meant to see a God who loves his people and who is grieved over their sin and grieved over the disastrous consequences of their sin. But brothers and sisters, the point is this. We must be very careful to never reshape God in our image and suppose that he's just like us, having our limitations and needs the ways we do. Instead, we must look at these verses in the broader context, and we must understand what God is teaching and communicating to us about himself. Now, admittedly, I just hit you with with a lot of information. If you have further questions about about this issue, I'd love to talk with you more after the service. If you have other verses or other questions that immediately spring to mind about the unchanging character of God, we'd love to talk with you about these things and to look at some of these things which are difficult to understand but are profitable for our knowledge that we may grow in our worship and love for God. Now lastly, this morning, as our time is just about up, lastly, we want to just apply this truth, uh, the truth of God's immutability, and see how it serves as both a warning to run to Christ, and how it serves us as a motivation to worship in spirit and in truth. The fact that God does not change, it will be either for you, it will be amazing news, it will be wonderful news, or, quite frankly, it is dreadful news. But either way, the immutability of God has definite relevance for your life. 
If you reject God, if you walk away from Jesus Christ and you walk away from the free offer of life and forgiveness that is found in Christ, there is no hope for you that one day on judgment day you will then stand before God and God will shrug his shoulders and say, you know, I think I've changed. I think I've really mellowed out and I'm not so angry against sin anymore and your sin is not such an offense to me. You know, now that I think about it, you're okay and I'm okay and we're all okay and just come on in. That will never happen. Why? Because God does not change. He is He is immutable. So for those who reject Him and who hate Him and who run from Him, there is no hope that He will change, that He will be less holy on, on Judgment Day. This is why Jesus could say in John 3.18, Whoever believes in Him, referring to Himself, to the Christ, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The immutability of God reminds us that there is only one way to be made right with God. There is only one way to be at peace with God. There is only one way to know the love, the grace, the favor, the mercy of God, and that is through Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to rescue. He came to be our substitute. He came to live the life that we could never live, fulfilling all righteousness. He came to die in our place for our sins that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God in and through Him. And so the immutability of God preaches a strong message warning us to flee to Christ and to run to Him that we may find life in Him. In addition to this, the immutability of God preaches an incredible message of comfort and peace that should motivate the believer to continually rejoice in God and to rejoice in Jesus Christ. Let me show this to you in just one verse and then we'll close and be done for this morning. In Hebrews 13.8, Hebrews 13.8 says so beautifully, so succinctly, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, you may hear that and say, okay, why is that such good news? Why, why does that matter so much? Why is that so relevant and important for my life today? Let's unpack this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. Why is yesterday important? Because Jesus came in history. Jesus came about 2,000 plus years ago, Jesus came. God became flesh. We look back to the cross to see Jesus' love, to see His redeeming work. Our hope, our confidence for today, for tomorrow, rests on what Jesus did yesterday. We look back to the cross to find hope and joy and strength for today in what Jesus Christ has accomplished in history. So you must know the Jesus of yesterday if you are to have life for today. Jesus is the same yesterday and today. Why is today so important? Well, that's kind of the obvious one. We live today. 
You live now at this time and we must know Christ today. Yes, Jesus came in history, but we walk with him now. We walk with him day by day, knowing that he has not changed. He is still kind and gracious and willing to receive all who come to him in faith and repentance. And we need grace and strength for today. And it is found in Christ. Jesus is the same today as he was when he said to the thief on the cross today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus has not changed in his love, his patience, his grace and his mercy. The same Jesus who lived and died and rose again and ascended into heaven is the same Jesus who ever lives to pray for us, to make intercession for us today. So it is good news that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today. But what about tomorrow? What about tomorrow? What about the coming years, the coming decades? If Jesus should change in the future, we would be in serious trouble. But the writer of Hebrews does not leave us wondering. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is your life for today. He is your certain hope for tomorrow. Every challenge you will ever face every trial you will ever experience, every difficulty you will ever meet for however many years you may live, if you know Christ, He will be with you. His Spirit living inside of you, indwelling you, His wisdom and sovereignty working all things together for your good. And then when this life is over, Jesus, your Good Shepherd, He will still be the same yesterday, today, and forever, and for an an infinite number of years to come. You will forever be with the one who loves you, who died for you, to purchase you, to make you his own, his possession, his child forever. This is why we can say with David, this is why we can read these words, this truth, and know that they still apply today in Psalm 23, where David speaks of the Lord as his shepherd. He says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Why can David say that? How can you have that same hope today? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you are so good. You have shown us such grace and favor in sending your Son to be our Savior, to die for us. We delight to be your people. We rejoice to be reminded once again this morning that you never change. Your love, your concern for your children will never grow cold. It will never grow stale. Father, we pray that you would help us to live in light of this truth, to live in a proper response to this truth, that we would know what it means to walk with you today.
to walk with Christ today, to walk keeping in step with the Spirit today, joyfully, confidently trusting you and your character and nature. Lord, we praise you for your unfailing love. We pray that you would be glorified in our lives. And we ask it all in Jesus' good name. Amen.